All right, well, happy Saturday evening to all of you. Um, thanks for being here and spending some time before the snow that will probably be zero inches by the time we wake up tomorrow morning, but that's okay. Hey, listen, uh, Finley, my oldest, she's three and a half, a little under four, and she's on the stage probably for the past couple of few months where she asks why all the time. And I've said this before, like, I don't, I don't really mind that the why questions, I think they're kind of fun. She asks good questions. The only time that it gets frustrating is that when she just like can't comprehend the answer. So she'll ask like why something happens or why this person did this. And like, she just doesn't understand the answer to it. And it's kind of funny, literally this week, I think it's from a show she watched or something. She has now started coming up to me and she says, Dada, ask me why. Like, what do you mean ask you why? She's like, ask me why. And I'm like, why? And she says something that doesn't make any sense. I'm like, what is, like, what, what is going on here, right? And here, here's why I bring that up. Um, tonight we're continuing our series, Uninvited King. Last week we looked at God's plan, the plan to send Jesus. Tonight we're looking at God's motive. Why did God send Jesus? That's the question we're looking at. And I'll go ahead and be up front with you uh, as, as we start. Uh, last week, I think, kind of gave us the warm and fuzzies because we saw, I think a lot of us knew, okay, God's plan to send Jesus, but we didn't know the detail to, uh, by which he planned to do it. And so it's like, oh man, he really cares for us. He really loves us. That's why he came. And uh, we're going to see that that's still true tonight, but we're also going to see how much he doesn't actually need us. And so although it may sound harsh, if you stick with me to the, through the end, I think this is what this will do for us. I think uh, hopefully when we leave here this evening, we'll be asking this question, why did God send Jesus? Where we'll intellectually we'll know the answer. God loves us, kind of giving it away a little bit. But I want us to be walking out of here thinking, okay, I get that he loves us, but it still doesn't make sense why he would still actually do it. That's my aim this morning. And so as we begin, again, here's what we need to know as we begin, and then we'll kind of talk about uh, this in a little bit more detail. But here's what we know as we begin, that God loves his creation. So right from the beginning, you may be familiar with this idea that God loves his creation. Now, uh, I want to make sure we're all on the same page when we're talking about this idea of love. This is a selfless love. This is a giving love. This is not a do what you uh, be nice or obey me and then I'll love you. No, this is a, a God who came even though he didn't need to, even though he didn't need us to give up himself so that we could have grace and forgiveness in a relationship with him. So as we begin tonight, and I think this is kind of, we kind of know this, but we're going to see how amazing this actually is, that God loves his creation. There's a bunch of places in scripture that talks about it. I'm just going to re read one really quickly. First uh, John, it'll be on the screen, but you can turn there if you want. First John chapter uh, 4, verse 9 and 10, it says this. This talking about what God's love looks like. It says this, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists not in, or consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So when we talk about God loving his creation and God loving us, this is what it looks like. Not that we were good and then he decided to send a Messiah to love and forgive us. That no, while we were sinners, while we rejected him and denied him, while we didn't even invite him, we didn't even want him to come, he still came. Why? Because he loves us and he wanted to make a way for us to have a relationship with him. Now, that's kind of the part that we all kind of understand. We get God loves us. But there's another part to this that I think actually shows us how magnificent this is. And that's when you understand that God, although he loves us, does not actually need us. So I'm going to give you a read a passage real quick in Exodus chapter 3 as well. It'll also be on the screen. Uh, what's happening here is uh, God has called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. They've been enslaved for uh, 400 years. Uh, and so he's like, okay, I'm going to send you. And this is the burning bush where God is talking to Moses through a burning bush. And he's like, I want you to do this. And Moses is like, they're not going to believe me. Uh, you know, what? I, I can't do this. I stutter. Who's going to want to follow me? And then here's what it says. In chapter 3, verse 13, it says this. 
So Moses kind of going back and forth with God, saying, no way, I can't do this. And he says this, then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So I am who I am. That is Hebrew for Yahweh. And basically here's what this means. That God is who he is, that he has always existed. He will always exist. He does not need us. He does not need anything to exist. He always is. He is self-sustaining. He is who he is, regardless of what we do, regardless if we follow him or not. No matter what happens, he is who he is. This, this is a theological term called aseity. It'll be on the screen. You may not care about this word, but if you want to impress your friends, uh, you can use this word called aseity. And here's what the definition of aseity is. This is a characteristic of God, that God is self-sufficient, deriving from and needing nothing else. That God, again, is self-sufficient, deriving from and needing nothing else. That God does not need you. Now, I know that sounds uh, maybe not nice in our culture where we all think we're awesome. We get participation trophies just for showing up, right? We think there's no way I'm like the best thing that's ever happened to anybody or to anything, right? But we need to understand that God does not actually need you, and yet he still loves you. That God, as we read in 1 John, is actually a God of love. And here's one of the very unique and interesting things about Christianity, that Christianity is the only religion in the world that can actually say God is something. So, for example, when we say God is love, we, we know that to be true because he is love regardless of whether or not he ever created us. Why? Because God is a trinity. So this is the concept that God, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There are three distinct beings, but yet at the same time, they're one being in a way that we can't fully comprehend in our human minds. But this idea that there is a trinity, which means that God is in a self-sustaining and a loving relationship regardless of whether or not he decided to create us. So other religions like Islam, may say God is a merciful God, but they can't say God is a merciful God because God can't be a merciful God unless there's a creation to be merciful towards. What this means, that God is self-sufficient because he is the Trinity, before he decided to make creation, he still was a God of love because he is in a love relationship, a, a self-sustaining relationship with himself. So again, he doesn't need you, but he loves you, which means, so, so this is what this means for us, again, that God doesn't need us, but yet he still loves us. And when we understand that God doesn't need us, although it may sound not nice to our Western modern consciences that, you know, we're not the most amazing thing ever. When you actually understand the fact that God doesn't need you, it makes his love for you much more profound. And let me give you an example of this. And I know this is going to, this is going to come across as maybe a little harsh, but stick with me and let me explain it. Um, but I think this is one of those things, like last week we talked about God's plan, where we, we knew God planned to send a Messiah, but we didn't understand like how much he actually detail went into it. I think many of us, especially if you're a follower of Christ, you would say, yeah, I kind of know God doesn't need us, but yet we still kind of think he does. Right? We still kind of think that, like, especially if you're not sure about this Jesus thing, we kind of have been sold this idea that God's up in heaven and he's bitter and he needs people to worship him or else he's going to get mad and he's kind of moody, right? And so we say, sometimes we say things like this, which isn't true, but we say it because we kind of, we kind of misunderstand this whole concept of God needing this. So, for example, and I know this sounds harsh, but let me explain. Like, when somebody dies, particularly if someone's younger, but not necessarily someone's younger, but let's say someone dies and they're younger and they're funny, what do we say? What's one of the things we say? Well, God needed a comedian in heaven, or maybe a scientist dies. God needed a scientist in heaven, or God needed another teacher in heaven, or God needed another angel in heaven. What we need to understand is that is not true. 
God does not need you and he does not need me in heaven to be a gracious and loving and good God. He does not need us. And I know that doesn't sound nice and I know that doesn't sound kind of fluffy, but when we understand that God does not need us, it changes the way we view him. Because instead of thinking, well, I know he probably doesn't need me, but he probably likes when I'm good and he probably kind of uh, gets more glory if I'm good and, and all these sorts of things. Like, yes, it is true. He desires us to have a relationship with him. He desires us to honor him and follow him, but it's not because he needs us. It's because he loves us. Now, that being said, if somebody loses a friend, and the first thing, and they say something like, well, God need another angel in heaven. And you tell them, well, actually, that's not true. God doesn't need you. Don't do that. That is a terrible thing to say, okay? If someone's mourning, that is not the right time to correct someone's doctrine or theology. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? That the greatest thing that we can do is love somebody. And it's okay if somebody says that it does not change whether or not they're saved or not. So we don't need to go around and kind of correcting people. But we just need to understand that statements like that are not true. He does not need us. He doesn't need another person in heaven. He doesn't need he doesn't need us at all, and yet he still loves us, which makes all of this that much more incredible. That he's not begging and hoping for people to be good people and to honor and worship him. That although that's good for us to do that sort of thing, he doesn't need it because he kind of beg- he's, he's self-sufficient in and of himself, and yet he still loves us, which man, makes us ask this question, why did he actually come? And here's why he actually came. Because God loves his creation, and you are God's creation. You are God's creation. Now, this is the part where I think we often feel like, I know God loves people. He probably loves the people that are good and do nice things and that sort of thing. But you need to understand that when we say that God loves his creation and that you are his creation, I'm not talking about your friends or your family that do good things or that go to church every week or that give a lot of money. No, I'm talking about you individually. God came because he loves you, not because he needs you, but because he loves you. And this is amazing, right? Have you ever been in a situation where like, uh, you know, somebody goes out of their way to do something for you and you're not like, you get it, you're not quite sure why. So let's say, you know, a friend buys you tickets because your favorite band's coming through town or some vacation or kind of throws you a surprise party. Like, have you ever been in that situation where somebody just does something for you because they love you, because they care? And you're kind of like, why did you do that? Like, you kind of get it, but it shows how much they actually love you. Like, I'll give you, it's not the perfect example, but I remember when, you know, Christina and I were going to do a church planning, I was going to do a church planning residency, and then we were going to work on, you know, launching the church, New City Church. And so we started asking people to, for money to do this sort of thing. People said yes, and that was nice, and that was really cool and encouraging. I couldn't believe it. And then it got to the point where we were starting to raise funds for New City Church. And so then I was like, okay, we, we need some more money to buy the things and to get things ready and to, you know, all this sort of thing. And so then I was like, okay, now I'm going to have to actually start asking people for more money. So the first person I called uh, was a good friend of mine who I've known for a long time, and I was going to ask for $5,000, which to me is still a lot of money. But especially the first time you asked someone for $5,000, I was like, I'm going to call my friend. And I, I remember we were on the phone, and like, I couldn't get it out. I was like, this is so awkward, right? Now, it turns out he couldn't do it. Now, he's supported New City. The fact that we were actually in this facility today, he's one of the reasons why, but he couldn't do it. So the next person I call, I call a guy, who, him and his wife, and uh, I can't remember how it happened, but basically... I asked for $5,000 and they did it. And I don't know if it was on the phone or it was an email the next day or a check came for New City Church. And I, and I remember in that moment thinking like, wait, why did you, wait, why did they do that? Like, I know I asked, like, I, right? But why did they actually do, and here, here's why, right? Because they believed in the mission of what we were going to do. And it's in that moment, it's like, why did, because they loved what we were doing. And you need to understand 
that God came not because he needs you, not because he wants something out of you, but because he loves you. Now, as a complete side note, we are growing. If you've been part of New City for at least the past few months, you've seen that. So if you want to write another $5,000 check, <laughs> it would be awesome because it would just do it, okay? And it would be awesome, right? But, it, but that's just, you know, a separate thing. Basically, we need to know that. Was here. Again, you are God's creation, so he loves you. And I think when we understand that he loves us yet he doesn't need us, that makes us like, why? Because he cares. That is why. And here's what this means. Not also does, that God, does God loves you, but if God loves you because he, he, you are his creation, here's what this means for you. That your value is given by God. Your value is given by God because he loves you, which means your value is not in how much money you have. Your value is in not in how much you weigh, not in the type of clothes you have, not in the house you live in, the car you drive, how many friends you have, how many social media followers you have. If you're in a really cool, prestigious career and you have all these employees under you, your value is not in what people say about you. Your value is not in what you do. It's not in where you live. Your value is given by God and he does not yield you, yet he came and he loved you, which means... If your value is assigned to you by God, then you are of infinite value to him. And if you are infinite value to the king and his opinion matters over everything else, you just need to know this morning or this afternoon or this evening, whatever, what is it, Saturday night? I'm not used to this, right? You just need to know. Maybe this is, for, uh, on a serious note, maybe this is the reason that you came tonight, that you need to know, no matter what people may say about you, what people think about you, that your value does not change based on how you act and how loving and caring you are. Your value is assigned and does not change because God loves you. And this is why we celebrate this uninvited king coming to earth, because it shows us that God cares and he loves us because he came. And so you need to understand that your value is given by God, and he still does not need you. He needs nothing from you. He needs nothing out of you, but he loves you, and your value is given by him. And so here's what we then need to do, right? If God loves us or his creation, and you are his creation, here's what we need to do this evening, is we need to understand God's motive. We need to understand God's motive for actually coming. I know we keep talking about how God doesn't love us, and God doesn't need us, but we need to understand why God actually came, why the Messiah actually came. Now, he did not come to be a good moral teacher. He did not come to be this kind of like, oh, life's hard. I'm going to look to Jesus because he's fluffy and he's nice. He did not come to be one of the many ways to God. He did not come to do any of those things. Here is why God came. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip there real quick or on a smartphone. If you don't have a Bible, you can pull out one of those black ones. And if you don't own one, you can take one of those black ones home. That is our gift to you. I just want to read a, a short passage from the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders in the early church, talking about why God came? What was God's motive for coming? So yes, he loves us, but what was his purpose in coming? What was he supposed to accomplish? What was he trying to accomplish? So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is talking about how we have a life after death, that because of Jesus, this life is not the end, that we have something that's coming next. And because of that, we are to live for Jesus so that other people can also experience his grace and his mercy. And so we're going to do these things not to make God love us more, but in response for what he's done for us. And here's what he says, starting in verse 17 of chapter 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Now, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means anybody. Again, it does not just mean the people that are good, the people that give a lot, the people that read their Bibles, the people that don't cuss, the people that don't watch pornography. No, this means anybody. Anybody in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your shame, if you are in Christ, 
You are a new creation. The old has passed away. You are not uh, what the world says you are. You are not what other people may say you are. You are his. And because of that, we continue in verse 18. He continues on by saying this. He says, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So everything is from God. So God created everything, the world as we know it. He created you. He created me. He owns everything that there is. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? That means that God came to reconcile us, to redeem us, to give us grace and forgiveness and mercy so that you and I, even though we do not deserve it, can enter into a relationship with him where one day we can enter into his kingdom where there's no more pain, death, crying, stealing, lying, anything of that nature, not because of us, because of what Christ has come to do, to reconcile us to himself. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. So that is in Christ. This is how this reconciliation takes place. Again, not in your efforts, not in your trying to be a good person, not in your hopefully your good outweighs your bad. No, it's in Christ and Christ alone. God is reconciling the world to himself, which means Jesus, again, did not come to be one of the many ways to God. He came to be the only way to God. And if he had not have come, there would have been no hope for us at all. So through Jesus, God is reconciling uh, reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins, our trespasses, the times that we dishonor God and turn away from him, not counting them against us. Why? Because Jesus took it all on the cross. Everything past, present, and future, if we trust and follow in Christ, Jesus took it all of it, all of it, uh, of, of all of the pain that and the, the wrath that we deserve, he took it on the cross, and therefore he has now committed the message of reconciliation to us. So what is this message? This message is the gospel, the good news that because of what Christ has done, you and I have nothing to do or nothing to impress and no one to, no one to, I'm trying to say, we have nothing to impress and nothing to do. It's all been accomplished in Christ. And if you are a follower of Christ, what he's saying is that message has now been entrusted to you to go and share and embody and live so that other people can also experience this message so that they can also be reconciled to God. The good news of the gospel, the message has been entrusted in followers of Christ so that we may also go forth and share this message. It says this in verse 20. Therefore, if that's the case, if we are supposed to embody and share this message, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are therefore his ambassadors since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Here's what he's saying, that if you are a follower, let me just speak to if you, you in the room, if you're a follower of Christ this evening, that if you are a follower of Christ, you are an ambassador for Christ, and you should be pleading on the behalf of your unsaved friends and family and coworkers and people in your life, that they would come to know Jesus. And if we were to go around in this room this evening, and, at, and which we won't do, even though it's a smaller gathering, okay, so you can... You can be, you know, it's good, okay? We're not gonna do this. But if we were to go around this room and I say, who are you pleading on? You should be able to answer that question in an instant. And if you cannot, if you're a follower of Christ and you can't tell me within one second, one person that you are pleading on behalf of Christ that they would know him, it does not mean that you don't love Jesus. It does not mean that you do not uh, that you are not saved, but it means that you are not doing what God and Christ has called you and I to do. It means that you and I have work to do. This is not a shameful thing. This is not a guiltful thing. This is not, you better do this so God will love you. No, we do, God, God loves you completely independent of what you do or what you don't do. But if we actually believe that this message of reconciliation is true, that Christ is
is the only way that this uninvited king came, and we do not have people that we are being intentional about sharing with and understanding this message, then what we are, might be actually be saying is we don't actually believe in this message as much as we say that we do. And so I'm not saying that you need to leave here and, and, and Monday when there's going to be no snow, so you're going to be back at work. I'm sorry, right? School, you'll be back at school. Sorry, all exams are still going to go on, right? Does that mean you need to say, hold on, let me tell you about Jesus. I'm not saying that. But there should be at least one person, if not multiple people, that you are uh, consistently pleading to them on behalf of Christ. Now, this could look different. This could be maybe a first step for you is just praying every single day about that person. It's not, there's not a pressure there. There's no, you're not going to feel awkward doing it. You don't have to say anything, but you should be praying for them uh, every single day, one person. Or maybe that you're going out of your way just to be intentional about how you treat this person, how you befriend this person. Maybe at work, nobody else likes this person, but you go out of your way to love them. Uh, maybe it is that you do actually pray for uh, abilities and, and for situations to show up where you can actually talk about your faith with that person. In fact, uh, this is the easiest time of year to invite someone to church as you leave tonight. We're going to have little invite cards for our Christmas service. Maybe that's a step that you could take this week is simply giving them an invite card to a Christmas service. Uh, the vast majority of people will say yes to that if they're available. It's the easiest time of year to invite someone. But let me just challenge you. If you're a follower of Christ, you ought to have somebody that you are pleading on their behalf that they would know Jesus. Again, not a guilt thing, not a shame thing, not God will love you more or less if you do or do not do it. But if we believe that this message is true, that grace and hope is only found in Jesus and we are not doing anything about it, then shame on us for actually saying that Jesus is Lord if our lives are not demonstrating that that fact is actually true. That is what he's saying here, that you and I should be pleading to other people that they be reconciled to God. They would be able to experience this message of grace and truth. And if you're sitting here and you're like, I'm not sure who that could be, start praying about that person. I'm sure you know someone, whether it's a school or a coworker that does not know Jesus, start praying for that person and just being intentional in that relationship with them so that you and I can be doing what Paul has called us to do if we believe that Jesus is who he said that he is. That is what he's saying. Be reconciled to God. If you're a follower of Christ, you and I should be pleading on behalf of those that do not know him. And here's why. Verse 21, he said this. Here's what we should be pleading. That he made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, when he said he, being God, made the one who did not know sin, he's not saying that God uh, made Jesus, that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit have actually eternally again always existed, but there came a point where Jesus submitted to the will of the Father uh, willfully and gladly to come to earth to make a way for you and I to be reconciled to him. He made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we may be the righteousness of God, that we may be uh, reconciled to God, that we may experience the grace and mercy that we do not deserve. And this is the message that should go forth, that we should be living out and praying and pleading on behalf of those that do not know Jesus, that there is good news for them. And if you're here tonight and you're not sure about this Jesus thing, you need to know that there is good news for you, that God loves you and that God cares for you, that he's why he came. Now, having said that, again, talking about how God loves us. Again, he loves us, but he does not need us, which means that Jesus did not have to come. Again, I think sometimes we kind of just think, well, God sent Jesus because that was the plan and to be loving and to give it. But we need to understand again, he didn't have to do this. He does not need this. He does not need more angels. He does not need more people. He does not need anything. And yet he still came. I have a, I have, you know, earlier I was talking about 
Have you ever been in a time in your life where someone went out of your way to bless you and you're like, why did you do that? Um, I uh, have this dream that hasn't happened yet, but feel free to be the one to make it happen. Where somebody someday is going to surprise me with Duke Carolina tickets to Cameron Indoor Stadium, right? And I'll be like, you did not have to do that, but you did it. Why? Because you love me and Jesus is going to give you, your mansion in heaven is going to be bigger. It's like... It's like in there a second opinion something I don't know I just I think it's in there um, somewhere in there right but see like you don't have to do that but you can right if you want to you can or I'll settle for Jersey Mike's number six that's a roast beef I love that too you can you don't have to but you can and again and here's what you say when it comes to Jesus again we need to understand that he did not have to come he does not need you he doesn't need you so why did he came. Because he loves you. And the more we understand that, again, he doesn't need us at all. Because I think we kind of think that's true, but then we kind of don't think that's true. We do think he kind of needs us, and so he gets mad, and we disobey, that sort of thing. He doesn't need you, but him coming shows you just how loving and selfless he is. Which, again, here's what this means. That God's coming is based on his love for you, not his need for you. His coming, again, is based on his love for you, not his need for you. Not for his need for you to act up or be a good person or to be generous or to be loving. You see, when God calls us to these things, when God calls us to himself and to, to love and honor him with our life, it's again, it's not for him to feel better about himself. It's because that is actually for our good. That God, If God is perfect and loving and he is the most, he, he is the greatest thing that we can imagine, then when he creates beings to love and to worship him, again, it's not because he's prideful and all about himself. It's because he knows that there is nothing else that can satisfy you more than him. So his coming is based on his love for you, not his need for you. He loves you. He doesn't need you. And I think that frees us up a little bit in how we respond and view God. Again, he's not looking down and be like, you better obey. You better listen. You better do this so that I can feel better about myself. No, he, he asks us to do things because ultimately it's better for us, not better for him. So again, his coming for you is based on his love for you, not his need for you. Again, this is why God came. John 3, 16. We talked about it last week. We'll say it again this week. One of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible. For God loved the world in this way. Let's just say this out loud together. Not out loud, but what does it say? For God what? Love. I said love. That was good. I was going to have to say, like, let's repeat it. We don't have to repeat it, but let's repeat it just because I was planning on it, okay? For God. Love. Right. It doesn't say for God needed. It's not saying for God wanted. It doesn't say for God was hoping. It doesn't say, it says for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, this gospel is good news for you. And verse 17 says this, again, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He came because he loves you, not because he needs you. And one more verse I'll just read really quick. It'll be on the screen as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says this. Again, Apostle Paul is writing. He says this, that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. 
Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why is this significant? So Paul, who before he became a Christian, was a religious, Jewish religious leader. He was highly influential, extremely smart. He actually oversaw the first killing of a Christian named Stephen, going around, overseeing, jailing, beating, probably killing Christians himself. Then he has this massive conversion experience. And so when he's writing to Christians and to the early churches, and he says, things like, I am the worst, but God saved me. This isn't like some false humility type thing. No, this is like, I, I was literally the worst and God saved me, which shows us that God can save and use anyone, not because he needed me. He surely didn't need Paul, but he loved him. That is why he came. The king came who is eternal and immortal and invisible. The only God be the glory and honor because of the grace of his coming. That is why he came, not because he needs you, because he is good, because he loves you. And so here's the bottom line for us this evening as we're talking about the motive and why Jesus came, and that's this. And the motive of Jesus, combined with the message of Jesus, shows us the magnificence of Jesus. In other words, the motive of Jesus, that he does not need you, but he loves you, combined with the message of Jesus, of the gospel, that God came to reconcile himself, you to himself, not because of what you have to do, but because of what he has done, shows us how magnificent Jesus actually is. And if I wanted to keep going with the alliteration, like a good old-fashioned uh, Southern Baptist, I could say, and that, how marvelous is that, right? We can just keep on going. He's me. This is, this is amazing. Right? But again, the motive of Jesus, he doesn't need you, but he loves you, combined with the message of Jesus that God came to save sinners, of which if he can save Paul, he can save you, shows us how magnificent Jesus really is. Again, the gospel is that this uninvited king came into the world to offer us hope and grace and forgiveness. He saves us not because of what we have done, because of what he has done, right? The message of Jesus combined with the motive of Jesus shows us how magnificent Jesus really is. Is. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him, that the king has come. He doesn't need us, but he loves us. And that is the good news of the gospel. This is why we celebrate this time of year that, again, this uninvited king who nobody wanted, who was rejected, came to give us hope and grace and forgiveness. And so I don't know what you're walking in with this afternoon, this holiday season. I don't know what's going on in your life, but you just need to know that God cares for you and he loves you. That is why he came. He does not love you because he needs something from you. He simply loves you because he wants you to experience his grace and his mercy. That is why we sing. That is why we gather. That is why churches all over the world exist, not to kind of give us good pats on the back, not to make us feel better when life is hard, but to talk about the reality that Jesus is true, that heaven and hell exist, and Christ came to make for us a way for us to experience his grace and his mercy. Again, the message of Jesus come out with the motive of Jesus, shows us how magnificent Jesus really is. And my hope for you and for me is like Finley, when she asks why and she can't quite comprehend what I'm trying to tell her, that you and I would be in that same situation when we look at Jesus and why he came. That we kind of get it, that he loves us, but it just not make, does not make sense. And we would just fall on our feet and say, thank you for what you have done. The motive and the message shows us how magnificent Jesus really is. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your love. Thank you so much that you came to do for us what we do not deserve, that you came to give us grace when we did not deserve it. And God, that you love us, not because you want something out of us, but simply because you want good for us. And so you came and gave of yourself. And my prayer this evening, no matter what we may be thinking about you, no matter what we're going on in our life, that we would know that you love us and that you care 
and that you're not trying to get something out of us. You simply want us to experience life. And you know that life cannot be found outside of you. And so we chase these things and we think they'll satisfy and they think we'll do things for us. And then we realize that they don't. And so we're on to the next thing. And my prayer is that we would just know this, this afternoon that as we're chasing these things and as we fall short, there is grace for us. There is hope for us. And the reason that there is grace and there is hope because there is love for us. And that love was demonstrated when you came to ultimately give up your life so that anyone who would trust and follow you, regardless of what they have done, can find grace and mercy at your feet. So God, thank you for coming. Thank you for loving us when you didn't have to. Thank you for loving us even though you don't need us. Thank you for the selfless love that you have given. We are so undeserved of your gift, but we are so thankful. So as we ask why, may we never get over the fact that we can never truly answer that question. God, why did you love us the way you do? We would just be thankful and that we would live our lives in response to that. Jesus, let me pray.